Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us for episode 82 with Mark Allen. Dr. Mark Allen is a professor at Pepperdine, and he has a world of research and some unique perspectives on the managerial set of responsibilities and how that may not be exactly what you need to do to advance in your career. So you're going to learn, one, alternatives to the traditional managerial track, two, why going for manager roles may not be optimal, even if you are a top performer. And three, means of valuing your team effectively in the workplace. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, you'll find those over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep82. And I'd encourage you to click around and explore awesomeatyourjob.com. We got cool resources from summary insights from guests via the Gold Nugget email list, as well as the 10-day winning at work email course, which shares some of my best tips and tactics that I share in my training programs for getting more efficiency and slashing waste out of your work week. So here's a quick bit about Mark. Dr. Mark Allen is an educator, speaker, consultant, and author who specializes in talent management and corporate universities. He's the author of Aha Moments in Talent Management and the co-author and editor of The Next Generation of Corporate Universities and The Corporate University Handbook. He has also written numerous articles in Practitioner and Academic publications. Mark is a professor at Pepperdine University's Graziadio School of Business and Management. He is also a senior faculty member of the Human Capital Institute, a senior associate with the Keeley Group, and has taught for Vital University and the American Management Association. Here's Mark. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast. Happy to be here, Pete. Well, so now you teach at Pepperdine, and when I have beheld the campus, and it is among the most gorgeous campuses I've ever witnessed with the water, the hills, the weather, I'd love to know, how do you take advantage of that scenery and your beautiful surroundings? Well, you know, the Malibu can't be beat. You know, we tell uh, employers that if our students can thrive with the distraction of being on the Pacific Ocean (laughs) in Malibu, they can succeed in any environment, but... My dirty little secret is I teach for the business school at Pepperdine, which means I work out of an office building near LAX. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice office building, but it ain't Malibu. (laughs) How far is the distance then, the travel? It's about 18 miles, which in Los Angeles traffic is an hour and a half. I hope you get out there from time to time with different events and such. Yes, they they let me come up a a couple of times a year for graduations and things like that. Cool, cool. Well, so I I also want to chat right up front. I know that we chatted earlier, one of your kind of hot button topics is when it comes to young professionals thinking that they want to be managers, but maybe they haven't actually thought through it in so much detail. And it's just sort of like the default setting. So maybe you could orient us a little bit. So how would you tee up how young professionals might think about the becoming a manager question? I think the reason so many people starting out in their career say they want to be a manager is because naturally you start in an entry-level position and you see managers who are people who have authority, they make more money than you, they're higher up on the org chart, more prestige, more status. 
and they think that's the way to go. But manager is actually a job with specific roles and responsibilities. And the first thing to think about is, do you actually want to do that job? Do you want to manage people? Do you want to spend your career doing the job of manager, which is very different from doing the job of actually doing something? And when I say manager, I'm not just talking about in some organizations where a lot of people have the title of manager. When I say manager, I mean people manager, someone who has responsibility for hiring people, for supervising them, for evaluating them, occasionally for disciplining or firing them. That is a very distinct job. And just because you might want more status or more money in an organization, the real question is, do you actually want to do that job? Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like an important question and a fundamental question. And I think that for many, it sort of doesn't even occur that there are alternative means of rising in status, power, influence without managing people. What do some of those alternatives look like? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. In one way, you're actually looking at building a career outside of a large organization. So you could be an independent contractor, a consultant, a trainer. There are also other jobs where people can enjoy professional success without managing people. Professor is one of them. Podcast host might be another. Mm, fine career. <laughs> but there are certainly lots of ways to make money in the world without managing people in large organization. If you do want a career in a large organization, many organizations now have a dual career track. So there's the traditional management track, which is what we've always called the corporate ladder. And up until recently, it was the only career track. It was a one-way street. You would go up as high as you could, start at an entry-level position and work your way up to supervisor, manager, senior manager, director, at every step of the way, getting more responsibility, more money, and frequently more people reporting to you or more people that you're responsible for. Increasingly, organizations are setting up a second career ladder, a practitioner track. So... If you do, in fact, want to go on the management track, you know, you're asked earlier in your career and at various points in your career, and you can certainly change tracks. And if you do want to go on the management track, you can go on that track. But if you want to go on the practitioner track, maybe you're an engineer and you've gone to school to study engineering and you don't really want to manage people. Or you're an accountant or finance manager and you like the accounting function but don't really want to manage people. Increasingly, organizations have the practitioner track where you can move up and be a senior engineer, master engineer, senior accountant, have more responsibility for managing projects or more responsibility for doing work at a higher level without necessarily managing people. And in those organizations that have the dual tracks, you can enjoy titles, prestige, status and money commensurate with the managerial track. And another advantage to this, it not only gives people a chance to do what they like and what they're good at, it gives the organization a chance to develop people around where they want to head. So if you choose the management track, then they develop you and actually teach you the skills of managing people before you're thrown into that role. If you choose the practitioner track, your development will focus on being more adept at your chosen career. And so the organization benefits by leveraging the strengths of employees and the employees benefit by getting to actually do what they want and what they're good at. Okay. Well, that's a compelling case. And so given now that you know our minds are expanded, like, okay, all right, there's moves above and different to the management. So 
maybe what might be some key acid tests or questions to think through to make an informed decision? Like, do I want to position myself and chase after opportunities that are up a traditional management track? Or do I want to tackle the track more so of the elite practitioner, if you will? So what are kind of the key things to look at to make a wise choice there? So number one, if you're contemplating, do I want to be a people manager? The first question is, do I like dealing with people? Do I like dealing with people issues and people problems? And anyone you know who's ever managed people says sometimes there are issues, problems, personal issues that go on that's part of the art and science of managing people. So the first question is, do I like dealing with people and people issues? The next question is, do I think I'd be good at hiring people, at developing people, engaging them and retaining them? Because the primary functions of a good people manager is hire good people, develop them, coach them, engage them, and retain them. And so if you're thinking of going into that track, do you think you'd be good at those things? And then I think the ultimate question is, do you have a passion for it? Because almost anyone I know who is awesome at their job mm-hmm. is doing something they're passionate about. They're not doing something that they just kind of landed in and they're showing up for a paycheck. And the best talent managers I know are really passionate about hiring good people, developing them, and coaching them. And so those are the questions to ask. And if you're answering no to all of those, perhaps managing people isn't for you. And then one caveat to that is, even if you're in an organization with a dual career track, These are not etched in stone. These are not decisions that go in your permanent record Mm -hmm. and are there for life. At various points in your career, you can switch and you can make direction changes in your career and move from one ladder to the other, ideally within a company you love or by moving to a different company. So, you know, it's interesting how when you ask those questions, they seem fundamental. I'm wondering if Some folks almost feel sort of guilty or like they're antisocial or a sociopath or something if the answers are no to some of those questions. Like, I guess I don't really like working with people. I don't enjoy dealing with them. So maybe could you correct us or offer some comfort there? Maybe what proportion of folks do you think are suited to enjoy and honestly dig the management stuff versus truly in their heart of hearts just don't? I can't really put a percentage to it, but I would say if you're asking the majority of people in the workplace really like working, you know, managing with people and dealing with people issues or don't, I would say the majority don't. Mm. But I don't feel a need to, as you said, correct you. I think you're right. There is a little bit of a stigma in raising your hand and saying, (laughs) you know what, I don't really like people. (laughs) In private conversations, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, sometimes people managers, sometimes just practitioners say, you know, I really like my job. The only thing I don't like is the other people. Mm. And, you know, the problem is hermit is not an especially high paying job. Yeah, I hear you. So, (laughs) you know, the big hermit firms just aren't hiring these days. (laughs) That's right. If you're a hermit, you've got to like produce like maybe literature of great (laughs) insight, but then you got to get a publisher and work with them and all that stuff. Yeah, and I don't think there's a a very lucrative career path in Monk anymore. So essentially, we all have to work with people. But the question isn't getting along with people. The question is dealing with people as the primary focus of your job. And 
I think in an organization that's honest about wanting dual career paths, I don't think there should be any stigma in saying, look, I'm an engineer, I love doing engineering, or I'm an accountant, I, I really like keeping the books, and I just don't see myself as being the best choice for someone to manage other engineers or accountants. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering maybe about careers like sales, because often that's like the quintessential example of this. Like, oh, you're a rock star salesperson, but then you're promoted to being a sales manager and you're not so great at that. So it's a bit of a different game. But sales is a people activity, yet it is distinct from managing people to do that activity. Absolutely. You've really hit upon like the primary example of why promoting top performers into management roles, people management roles, is, I believe, one of the biggest causes of organizational dysfunction. And, you know, I used to think this was a mistake, and then I realized I was wrong. It's two mistakes. Because, first of all, we're taking someone who's good at sales and you know, is there any real belief in the assumption that if someone is really good at sales or engineering or accounting or nursing, that they're likely to be really good at managing other people who do that function? I think we know that there really isn't any truth to that assumption. And if you look at professional sports, typically the best athletes do not become the best coaches or managers. Mm. And the guys recognized as the best coaches and managers are more likely the role players, guys like Pat Riley or Phil Jackson, who weren't superstars. And when superstars like Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan tried their hand at coaching, they weren't necessarily the best at it. So I don't think there's any truth to the assumption that just because someone's really good at a function, they would be good at managing other people at doing that. Some are, but not all. And the reason I say it's two mistakes is, number one, where creating a manager out of someone who probably doesn't have the aptitude and possibly not the desire to do it. And so the skills you need to be a good manager are good people skills, good communication skills, the ability to hire, develop, engage, and retain good people. And yet we put people in that role based not on their competencies for doing the role we're putting them in. We're putting them in it based on their competencies of doing a different job called Mm -hmm. sales. And to me, one of the most frustrating things is manager, a vitally important position that's higher up on the org chart and is paid more money. We typically select people for that role based not at all on the competencies to do that role. It seems to be the one position in our organization where we ignore competencies when we select for the role. Mm. And the second mistake, which is a little more insidious, is We're taking our best salesperson and saying, you're so good at sales. Now we want you to do something different and stop doing the thing you're really good at. Yeah. So we're not only creating a bad manager, we're subtracting our best salesperson. Okay, that's a potent argument there. And I guess it's interesting. And I wonder in practice, it's almost maybe like the halo effect or now I'm wondering psychologically, like, why do we do such things? It's like, well, you're a high performer and therefore you will succeed in this as well. Maybe is the logic spoken or unspoken, or why do you think leaders fall for that trap? I think the main reason is we want to reward our top performers. Uh, And we have this mindset that the greatest form of reward we have in our organizations is promotion. And promotion is not a reward for doing your job well. It's actually a shift to a different job. 
So promotions should not be rewards and promotions should not be given for doing a different job well. The promotion should be given to the person who demonstrates the skills and competencies to do the job. The great performer should be rewarded in other ways, like money, good work assignments, prestige, status, recognition. But in some cases, that reward is actually a punishment. Right. Because somebody doesn't even want to do the job. You know, I'm thinking about Captain Jean-Luc Picard right now to bring out my nerdy Star Trek The Next Generation. But, you know, the outstanding captains knew, don't let them make you an admiral and take you out of the captain's chair. Don't let it happen. Yes, number one. (laughs) well played well played engage (laughs) well now tell us it sounds like you created a really great distinction when it comes to that top performer manager promotion piece that sounds like perhaps what you might call an aha moment in talent management the name of one of your books are there some any other sort of particularly relevant aha moments that you think a young professional should get their arms around you know the book has 13 talent management principles, 13 chapters, each one ending in an aha moment. And I'm happy to share with you number one. It starts with the idea that if you were to ask any CEO, what is your most valuable asset in your organization? What's their answer? It's our people. (laughs) It's our people. They all say, I actually always ask when I meet a CEO very innocently. And half the time they answer before I'm even done with the question. What's your most valuable? It's our people. (laughs) It's like they teach them in the first day of CEO school. If anybody ever asks, you have to say it's our people. It's our portfolio of proprietary patents. (laughs) (laughs) You never hear that one. No. (laughs) The tougher question is when they say it's our people, do they really mean it? Okay. And many of them do. Some don't, but most do. But even if they mean it, the real question is, does the organization behave every day as if it truly believes people are our most valuable asset. And because just as I ask that question to CEOs, I ask a lot of employees, does your organization actually behave as if it believes people as our most valuable asset? And sadly, the vast majority say no. So the first aha moment in the book is people are your organization's most valuable asset. Behave as if you believe it to be true every day. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not careless with the way we treat the money in our organization or the technology, but sometimes we don't manage our people asset with the same level of care. Right on. That's good. That's good. And so any kind of insert making that kind of extra real, does that kind of have some key implications about some just kind of basic, hey, you really have to do this and you really shouldn't do that. And yet these behaviors happen all the time. Are there any kind of particular actions you'd shine a light on there? There's a couple that are just recurring themes every time I talk to people in organizations. Number one is work-life balance. Okay. And Pete, what do you suppose, what percent of organizations say they value work-life balance? Oh, say, well, probably almost all of them. Yeah, that's close <laughs> to 100%. And now, Pete, what percent of organizations do you suppose actually behave as if they value work-life balance? You know, it's funny. I'm just thinking Netflix, And a couple others. I don't know. Have you done some research on this, good professor? I have done anecdotal research. And whenever I ask people, does your organization say it values work-life balance? Yes. When I say, do they really? It's about 50-50. I mean, there are a lot more organizations now that really do value work-life balance. 
But I talk to people and they say, you know, you just use the phrase 40 hour work week and they laugh at you. Mm. Like, you know, the only time they have a 40 hour work week is Thanksgiving week when it's only Monday through Wednesday. But if people are working six days or 12 hours a day or 60 hours a week, that's the opposite of work life balance. When I ask them why they do that, it's either, well, it's expected here or it's the only way I can get my work done because I just have too much stuff. Well, that means we haven't designed the jobs appropriately. Yeah. The other piece that fits in with the idea of behaving as if people were your most valuable asset is this constant cycle of layoffs. And we've come up with so many euphemisms. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be layoffs, then it was downsizing, then it was right-sizing. Now it's reduction in force. At Bain, we called it an SG&A rationalization. A rationalization. Uh That happened from time to time. And sometimes it's true. Like it makes sense. It's rational for the levels of overhead functions to be here. But the hard reality is, is yes, some positions are going to be eliminated in those projects. And yes, sometimes you do have to do it. But it's become so routine Mm -hmm. that, you know, even the phrase reduction in force has been reduced to a riff. Yeah. And I hear people say, well, we're doing another riff. And they say it with the same casualness as if you would say, well, we're doing our quarterly inventory (laughs) or we're closing our books. You know, we're doing a riff. Now, if people are your most valuable asset, how come we never say we're cutting assets? Yeah. Right. I understand you have to cut costs, but at least acknowledge you're cutting assets. I don't think we'd be as cavalier about doing riffs if we called it causing great harm to employees and their families. All right. That's powerful. That is a provocative statement and it makes some good sense. So I guess in practice, in terms of folks who are not in the senior echelons of leadership and able to implement that kind of stuff, but in the kind of rank and file or the manager of a couple direct reports, what are some key practices that they can invoke? Well, so if you're a first line supervisor, think of your job as you have been entrusted with the organization's most valuable asset whether it's a large group or a small handful of talented people, that is an asset to your organization and you have been entrusted with it. And take that very seriously and realize, let's face it, the number one reason why people leave organizations is their immediate supervisor. So as a supervisor, are you doing things to get your people to want to stay and produce for the organization? Or are you, in fact, driving talent out the door? And then for the rank and file, if you're in a position and you're one of those people who tells me my organization doesn't treat its people well, I do have some advice for you. Get the hell out of it. <laughs> I thought that's what you're going to say. <laughs> because there are so many organizations that do, in fact, treat their people well. And, you know, the sad truth is we spend more time at work with the people we work with than at home with the people we love. And so if you're going to spend that time, the companies that treat their people really well, they will also give you a paycheck. Uh-huh. The worst reason to stay on a job is, well, they pay me and I need the paycheck. Well, your crappy company isn't the only one that offers that benefit. The companies that treat people well also treat them well and give them paychecks. All right. Straight talk. Very good. So I'm curious. We talk about treating people well. 
Are there any kind of sort of key practices in terms of means of doing the recognition, the appreciation, and getting the strengths to come alive from folks? You know, Pete, that's a great question. And your questions just cut right to the important issues. Well, thank you. (laughs) And so now to answer your question, praise is cheap. Okay. You mean it's cheap in that it doesn't mean much or it doesn't cost you much to do it? It doesn't cost much. Okay. In that case, I might have sounded insincere, but I was in fact being sincere. Oh. (laughs) You are a good host, but it didn't cost me anything to say that. Oh, thank you. And it probably made you feel better. I liked it, yeah. (laughs) And... You know, sadly, I can't pay you more, Pete, (laughs) but I can praise you more. Yeah, yeah, keep it coming. Okay, well, there's a lot of sort of meta-level examples unfolding in those last few seconds. So I'm with you. So praise, it's easy, it's free, you can do it. Feedback as well, it's helpful. It's a breakfast of champions. I've heard it said it enriches people and strengthens their professional capabilities for the current organization or an ex. So praise and feedback, any others? You know, treat them like a human being. And it almost goes without saying, but I don't know about you, but I've been on jobs where I had bosses that treated people like they were expendable commodities and not human beings. And, you know, just basic human decency and respect goes a long way. Well, so I guess I just had a quick final piece, unless there's something else you want to make sure we cover off. And since you also teach creativity innovation, I know that's a popular topic amongst some of our podcast guests and listeners. Any quick tips you'd suggest for folks who want to generate more quantity and quality of ideas just during the course of the workday? You know, it's an interesting topic because we say creativity and innovation as if it were the same thing. Ah. But in fact, creativity is the ability to generate new ideas or solve problems in new ways. Whereas innovation is the ability to implement new ideas. And if we define them that way, then creativity, the ability to generate new ideas, would typically describe an individual. Okay. Whereas innovation, the ability to put new ideas into practice, would describe an organization. And I would venture to guess that the majority of your listeners are creative. They Mm -hmm. are people who can generate new ideas. So the real question is, are you working in an organization that's innovative? And what distinguishes innovative organizations is not that they have more creative people. Because if we do define creativity as coming up with new ideas, most organizations are full of creative people. But there are two things organizations do that hinder their innovation. One is creative employee, and I'm sure many of your listeners have been through this, say, hey, boss, I've got an idea. And then there's a whole litany of creativity-killing answers that bosses give. Mm. And I'm sure you know some of these, which are, we don't have the money for that, we don't have the time, we've tried it before and it didn't work, that's not how we do things around here, it's not your job to come up with new ideas, it's not your job to think, when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. Oh, mercy. But I, I think we've all heard some of these answers in various forms, and so that is pretty goes a pretty long way towards killing innovation. The even more insidious way is the boss says, hey, that's a good idea, let's give it a try. And we give it a try, and for whatever reasons, it fails. It could be good idea, bad implementation, good idea, bad timing, good idea, not enough resources, good idea, bad luck. And so we try it, and it fails. And the big boss says, hey, you lost money, this is what's a failure and somebody's got to be punished. And the person who came up with the idea 
gets ridiculed, demoted, fired. Mm. Then the next day, another employee has a really good idea, but they see what just happened to the other guy and they keep their mouth shut. Right. And then the company comes up with the realization that we're not innovating. And the solution they come up with is we've got to hire more creative people. Well, the fact is you just fired one creative person and silenced another. And so the one hallmark of all innovative organizations, they don't punish failure. All right. Any innovation, which is trying a new idea, involves some level of risk. And if you're going to take a risk, that means you have to be willing to accept failure. And uh, one company that I've worked with has as one of their core values, it's a phrase I love. They say, we will not punish intelligent business risk-taking. Okay. So they are valuing the idea of intelligent risk-taking, regardless of outcome. Mm-hmm. All right, so there's a key distinction between definitions, and you're saying that many folks are just creative pretty much kind of naturally, just the way our human brains operate. Any tips or tricks or tactics to kind of throw on the gas and let them rip? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not a manager's or an organization's job to make you more creative, but it is our job to create an environment in which people can be creative. Some of that involves the physical environment. Some of it involves the culture. So the question isn't making people more creative. It's managing the creativity that people have. And so for frontline employees, do they feel like they work for an organization where they can say, hey, boss, I've got an idea. Hmm. And again, if you don't, you're maybe working at the wrong place. But if you think you can, then go ahead and, and be creative. Throw out your ideas. Not every idea works, but you do want to have the freedom to be able to express yourself. All right. Well, a lot of good stuff here. Mark, you tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure we cover off before we shift gears and hit some of your favorite things? No, I think, uh, as I said earlier, your questions are spot on and you've really hit my areas of interest. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm interested too. And I'm also interested to hear, can you start us off by sharing a favorite quote? You know, it comes from the world of HR and at Pepperdine, we recently launched a Master of Science and Human Resources program. And I kick off that program with a quote from a man named Tony Parasita, who's the senior vice president of human resources for the Boeing Corporation. And Tony says, if you focus on engineering, you'll have a great engineering function. If you focus on finance, you'll have a great finance function. But if you focus on human resources, you'll have a great company. Mm, Okay. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? You know, tying right into what we've been talking about. There was a study a year or two ago that was published in Harvard Business Review that said 50% of Americans don't aspire to leadership positions. Huh. And that's especially powerful because here we are with people, you know, climbing that ladder, moving their way up to get money. And on the other side of the organization, we're doing these super secret succession planning meetings and nine boxes where we're identifying high potentials. But it turns out half of them don't even aspire to leadership positions. So I think, you know, the typical nine box looks at performance and potential, high, medium, and low. I think we need to add the third dimension, which is aspiration, Mm. which might give us a 27 box Rubik's Cube. Oh yeah, three dimensions. (laughs) How can you put it on a PowerPoint slide then? (laughs) That's the problem, (laughs) isn't it? Oh man. Well, interesting, thank you. And how about a favorite book? You know, if I were a shameless plugger, I would say Aha Moments in Talent Management, published by ASTD and available on Amazon, but I wouldn't do that. No. So, I'm going to go with a book that Marcus Buckingham wrote called 
The One Thing You Need to Know. And I think it's such a powerful book. First of all, it's a bargain because it gives you three things you need to know for the price of one. (laughs) It's what you need to know to succeed at being an individual contributor, what you need to know to succeed at being a manager and at being a leader. And in each case, it's some variation on the theme that Marcus Buckingham has been preaching for a couple of decades, which is focus on your strengths. All right. Don't try to fix the one little thing you're not good at and work on that. People are going to pay you not for being well-rounded, but for being really good at something. So try to get better at what you're really good at. Mm. That's connecting for me. They're not going to pay for being well-rounded. I'm reminded of the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which was riveting about the Enron scandal. Yes. And I guess McKinsey and Jeffrey Skilling, the CEO, said, I'm looking for guys with spikes, which is like the opposite of well-rounded. Like, <laughs> well, that's noteworthy how excellent you are at that, even if you are kind of embarrassingly bad at several other things. Yeah, so if only he had said, we're looking for guys with spikes and decent ethics. <laughs> that's right, not ethical. Spikes and ethics, but spikes yeah. elsewhere is what they got. That's a good book, too. Well, so you tell me about a favorite tool, something that you find helpful as you're doing your job. You know, one thing that I really like to see is uh, Prezi, All right. which is a presentation software. What I like most about it is that it isn't PowerPoint. Okay. And we've all been PowerPointed to death. Prezi moves a little better. It's a little easier to use, and it's different. And presentations with Prezi tend to be a little more dynamic. And its greatest advantage is it's not PowerPoint. All right. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's been pretty handy? I love to have zero emails in my inbox. Now, some people are very jealous of this because they have just an endless stream. But, you know, if I go to bed and there's a bunch of stuff in my inbox, I'm thinking that's a lot of stuff I have hanging over me. So typically an email comes in, I respond to it quickly, and then I can delete it. If I don't reply, then it's sitting there. But I wake up feeling pretty good every day knowing I had gone to bed with no emails in my inbox. Now that's sparking all kinds of follow-ups, if I may. It's now... Sure. Okay. If you feel comfortable divulging, how many emails do you get in a day, roughly? Well, I will say well over 100, but a good half of them are things I don't need to read or attend to. They're junk or not really pertinent. Okay. And so then the remainder might take an average of one, two, three, four, five minutes per response? Most of them, it's a 30-second response. It's 30 seconds to read it and 30 seconds to type one or two sentences. And I'm not saying I achieve the zero inbox every day. I aspire to that. The point is, you know, I hear where you're going with this. I've got a few dozen and it's going to take minutes. It's a few hours a day of work. But if I don't do it, it's not like it's going to take any less time to respond to it tomorrow or next week or next month when I have a hundred of them. So it's really just a question of not deferring what I have to do to a later date. Yeah. The quest continues. I'm battling that thing. And it's like I get to zero maybe every other week or so. And I'm usually coasting between 20 and 50. Like, ooh, that's going to take six minutes. And I don't have those six minutes right now. Yeah. But it's going to take that six minutes at some point. It is. It is. You're not saving anything. <laughs> Just You're saving something today. And I get that. And some days are busier than others. No. And So as I said, I don't achieve it every day. I just aspire to it. And it's a good feeling when you get there, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's glorious. It's liberating. It's like I'm flying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. All right. 
And how about a favorite sort of nugget, a piece that you share an articulation of one of your kind of core messages that really seems to jive and resonate with folks? It coincides with the Marcus Buckingham theory that I mentioned earlier, which is to leverage your strengths. But what I always advise people is to do what you love. And I know it sounds like a cliche and, you know, your dad said that to you in high school, but it really comes down to we spend so much time at work and a lot of times we have jobs we don't love. Sometimes we have jobs we hate and we've all had those, but sometimes we have jobs where we're just not bringing our passion to it. And, you know, the really sweet spot in life is spending your time doing something you enjoy and someone gives you money for it. Uh That's the realization. And for me, it took, you know, a few decades to first figure out what I love doing and then figuring out how to get people to pay me for it. So it takes a while. But the first step, of course, is figuring out what you really enjoy doing. And then if you can and you're good at it, you'll be able to find a way to have people pay you for it. Okay. Thank you. And how about a favorite way to be contacted? If folks want to reach out and learn more or see what you're up to, where would you point them? Well, as much as I hate to put more things in my inbox, I always respond quickly to emails. That's part of the trick. And I like being contacted by email. My email address is very simple, mark.allen at pepperdine.edu. Okay. Thank you. And do you have a final kind of call to action or parting words challenge you'd issue to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Before I say that, Peter, i got to say, I love the title, How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Oh, thank you. And just last week, I was reading my student evaluations from the course I taught last summer. And there's a section on there that says, do you have any suggestions to make this course better? And one student wrote, N-A colon, dude is awesome. <laughs> That feels good. Yeah. Even though we might hope our MBA students are a little more articulate and formal in their writing, I think Dude is Awesome is one of my favorite pieces of feedback I've ever gotten. Oh, amen. Congratulations. (laughs) So the challenge I would send out to people early in their careers is not to do what I did. And basically the challenge is don't wait. So if you're in a job that isn't your destiny, don't wait. I spent a lot of my time waiting for the next thing to come along. And, you know, the next thing doesn't just come along. You've got to find it or make it. And so you have a very valuable inventory in your career, which is your time. So don't wait. If you're not in the right spot, find the right spot. And my second favorite quote, the CEO of Farmers Insurance, Jeff Daly, says, we want all of our employees to have the career they're destined to have. My advice, don't wait, figure out the career you're destined to have and make it happen. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Mark. This has been a lot of fun and I hope that you get to enjoy some more of the beautiful part of Pepperdine campus more (laughs) often. And this has been a real treat. Pete, I'd love to chat more, but I got to get some stuff out of my inbox. Okay, well, I hope that broadens your perspectives a little bit and you've got some great questions to ask yourself as you're navigating and plotting the optimal path through your career. And again, if you want to check out some of the resources in terms of the show notes with the links to things mentioned and transcript and whatnot, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep82. And I would request you punch the subscribe button if you haven't already so you won't miss folks like our next guest, Mac Pritchard. He runs a job board in Portland and has a towering set of 
experiences and tips when it comes to networking and playing that game optimally. So I hope to catch you then and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 